Welcome to Startup Cornell, a podcast exploring the bold entrepreneurial ideas coming from our students, faculty, staff, and alumni. I'm Kathy Havis, your host, and today we're going to talk with Barry Beck. He's the founder of Blue Mercury, M61 Laboratories, Luna Naster Cosmetics, and his latest venture, Evenly Technologies. And he's also this year's Cornell Entrepreneur of the Year, so we are really happy to have him with us. We're excited to hear the story of what prompted him to launch his businesses and how this new company continues his vision. We're also thrilled to talk about his time at Cornell and about the upcoming celebration event where he will be honored on campus April 13th and 14th. To find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu. And remember, rate and review our podcast by scrolling to the bottom. That way, even more young entrepreneurs can find the podcast and be inspired to follow their dreams. So welcome to Barry. I'm so glad you could be with me today. Kathy, thank you. I'm super excited to be here. Great. You've had so many companies. I hate to ask you to do the 30-second elevator pitch about all of them, but maybe you could tell me a little bit about Blue Mercury. I think that's how a lot of people know you, and also about your latest venture, Evenly. Well, thank you. I've been trying to start companies since I was around 10 years old, even as a young boy, landscaping, car detailing, office construction, sort of always looking for more scale, continuing to find my way into bigger opportunities, sort of picking up steam in my new ventures throughout high school, later in college. You know, Blue Mercury was my second national company where we completely upended the luxury beauty business when we launched onto the scene. When we came into the industry, around 90% of luxury beauty products were sold at the department stores, which was more than a $100 billion opportunity at the time. And Blue Mercury's innovative neighborhood store strategy, which was very new at the time, citing stores where customers lived and worked, helped drive this department store share down to around 60%. So that extra 30% went to small format stores like Blue Mercury and ultimately Macy's a Fortune 100 company saw the value of what we created, acquired the company uh, in 2015. You know, sort of my third national company, which I'm running now is Evenly, which is a technology and telemedicine platform that enables general dentists to perform orthodontics, which is uh, like Invisalign type teeth straightening and alignment at the level of an orthodontic specialist right inside their practice. And sort of we become their in-house orthodontic department. And this is a sort of massive an untapped market because 237 million people went to their dentist at least once last year, and 70% of those, either kids and adults, would benefit from teeth straightening. So very excited about my new opportunity. Right. So how did you find yourself creating these products? Were there like aha moments when you were in both cases like, oh, this is a huge untapped need that isn't being met? How did the, the idea for these two come your way? You know, I'll start with evenly. So at Evenly, I was working still at Blue Mercury in 2019. We were serving around 12 million customers at the time. And we started to see a new trend, which began right around 2008 with customers looking to purchase in the light health and wellness category. And then right around 2019, customers began coming into stores asking about oral wellness. And so I saw an opportunity to democratize orthodontics which is where I saw the big opportunity by bringing high quality sort of outstanding Invisalign treatment to customers across the nation. And again, I knew that 237 million people visited their dentist in the previous year and an enormous amount of those people would benefit from these types of services. And so I jumped into the business, 
did a bunch of groundwork and I decided to open up an orthodontic studio in DuPont Circle, actually, in fact, inside an old Blue Mercury store. I spent a year or so doing some alpha and beta testing, treating patients referred to us from general dentists for orthodontic work. And so most of our patients were coming from these general dentists who referred out their orthodontic work because they weren't skilled at it. And so I approached a handful of these dentists and asked if I could build a platform where they could keep these patients in-house and still provide comprehensive care at the level of a specialist, would they sign up for that platform? And the answer was yes. I signed up about 60 dentists in nine months. And of course, the rest is history. Now we're expanding across the nation. We teamed up with the amazing Palo Alto-based venture capital giant, New Enterprise Associates, NEA, who has believed in our vision. And you know we think this is just the early innings for Evenly. And we're sure that as more technology and innovation come into the market, you know our opportunity to offer more products and services to our legions of dentists and patients will expand. Fascinating. And it isn't just like teenagers who are getting orthodontic care. Like I know the last time I went to the dentist, my dentist was like, you know, you really could use some <laughs> some Invisalign. So it feels like the market is even broader than it used to be. The majority of our patients are actually adults who may or may not have had orthodontics as kids, uh, kids and teens, but uh, would greatly benefit from teeth straightening either for aesthetic purposes or just other health and wellness needs. Yeah, that's interesting. Obviously, you just said you're expanding across the country. So I imagine that that's kind of your latest initiative that you're working on is just to expand the model that you have in even larger areas. Are there other initiatives or products that you're working on? Yeah. So, you know, we're really refining our tech platform to link our doctors and patients more closely. And we're also super focused on building a deep moat around our customers with technology combined with our expert team of doctors and clinical staff, you know, in a way that we know that our customers will never want to leave. You know, I like to say our experts are so knowledgeable. I call them our human Googles for oral health and wellness. And additionally, of course, I'm working on a suite of oral wellness, anti-aging and teeth whitening products, which we're already starting to tease on our website. Oh, that's great. So that'll go, that'll be sold right through evenly as well. Yes. And we're also talking to other retailers about the products as well. Very cool. You've had a lot of successes in all of your companies and Obviously, we at Cornell believe you're a big success. We're honoring you as the Entrepreneur of the Year. Tell me a little bit about what that award means to you and what maybe some of the greatest successes that you're proud of at this point in your career. I think for me, the most important success for me is that I've learned to recognize really the difference between joy and happiness. And so for me, happiness comes from each successive achievement. But true joy has come from building an amazing, fun-loving family and a group of dynamic companies with amazing experts in their respective fields. And as it relates to the Cornell Entrepreneur of the Year Award, you know, of course, I recognize and understand the award is a, you know, an amazing recognition of the innovation and value we've created over the years. But I'm super thankful for everything my Cornell experience has prepared me for. My time at Cornell was so inspirational. It was really a meaningful place for me. And it's just wonderful for me to be back here for this award. But in the end, you know, I don't really think that the award's really about me. For me, I really believe it's a calling to more entrepreneurs. We need more entrepreneurs. And I'm just super passionate about that. And it's really entrepreneurs, sort of the ones that are crazy enough to think they can change the world and then go ahead and do it. One of the reasons I really think about that, and I think about this a lot, which is that when you look at the economic history of the world, the main way societies grow is through this type of innovation. Most everything else is really a rounding error. 
So creating a new idea, new formulas or a recipe, and sort of applying this human ingenuity to solving problems really like increases the standard of living for everybody. And I guess I understand it doesn't solve some spiritual crises, but it can make life a whole lot better for the masses and improve standards of living and medical outcomes for everyone. And I think it's important for the aspiring entrepreneurs who may be listening to this podcast to know that there's a shortage of good new ideas and good people to execute them. You know, they call this the puzzle of the missing Elons. And you can maybe make a list of those people, but there are plenty of levels below them and venture capitalists are trying to find them. And so I just think there's more opportunity than ever. And it's never been a better time to become an entrepreneur or start an entrepreneurial venture. That's really interesting. That's really good advice. So you've done some efforts to support entrepreneurs through some funding initiatives at Cornell, right? There's some, I think there's some fellowships that you funded. Is that correct? Yeah. So we, I think back in 2016, launched the Beck Entrepreneurship Fellows Program, which is a way we provide a stipend for summer work for students to work on their entrepreneurial ideas without having to be burdened with getting an hourly job to pay for their, their life. And so we've had great success. We've come back and listened to these entrepreneurs speak. Some of them have gone on and raised other rounds of venture capital. One of them won a New York State Award. One was accepted at Y Combinator. So it's really an amazing crop of entrepreneurs. And it's really an amazing award or, excuse me, reward for us to come back to school and see this amazing group of young budding entrepreneurs do their thing. That's great. So talk a little bit about your experience at Cornell. I'd love to know what you majored in, what some of the most formative, if you have some professors you remember or classes or extracurricular kind of things you were involved in that were meaningful to you. I'd love to hear about that too. So I was an ILRE at Cornell. So I was at the ILR school. We were small but mighty. And, you know, I think in the ILR school, my most impactful class was really organizational behavior, which really provided me a framework for growing and sustaining successful teams. I think the ILR school also taught me how to build great organizations that harness the power of each individual's potential. And then I would say just sort of lastly, I felt fortunate to enjoy a few serendipitous meetings with Dean David Lipsky. And during our brief interactions, he imparted really some key insights for me, especially suggesting to always put my people first, which became a hallmark and fundamental component of all my companies. And this guiding principle formed the basis for both Blue Mercury and Evenly's innovative and radically different people strategies, which ultimately has always become my enduring secret weapon, building a team of experts inside our businesses that are the best in the world at what we do. That's great. So what are your people strategies that you think are so different than in other companies? So, you know, early on, we always decided to staff our team with experts who were really selected based on their passion for the products we're selling and also their friendly client-focused disposition. And so when we capture these experts inside the organization and they'd stay for long periods of time and we build them great career paths where they might not have had that at other companies. We also retain their expertise, their knowledge and customer relationships. And this really translates to an amazing and successful business that's growth compounds over time. Interesting. You mentioned you've always had this tendency to be entrepreneurial ever since you were a kid and then it just kind of has blossomed ever since then. 
Do you feel like there are certain skills or personality traits that you have that you share potentially with most entrepreneurs? Are there certain things about you that you feel like just fated you to always be an entrepreneur? Well, you know, they say wealth sometimes skips a generation. You know, I grew up in Philadelphia in a middle-class family. My father, Stuart Beck, was an intellectual property lawyer. My mother, a school teacher. My father's father passed away when my dad was only 16 years old. And my dad, uh, who was a brilliant engineer who planned to go to MIT, instead stayed in Philadelphia working to support his mom and younger brothers, all while attending Drexel University, where he eventually met my mom. You know, in contrast, you know, my mother's family, uh, my mother's father, particularly Joseph Kushner, was one of the most successful businessmen at the time in Philadelphia. He was the original maker of Aizan Lacoste the eponymous brand named after the French tennis player, René Lacoste, known for as the crocodile for his aggressive style of play. This was a big brand when I was a kid. I don't know if it's as popular today as it was, you know, when I was a kid. But, you know, when my parents married, my grandfather asked my dad to join the family business at Lacoste. And my dad replied, well, I'd rather be broke than ever work for my father-in-law. So that's sort of the way it was. You know, but I was always tangential to my cousins whose family leapt into the business. And for me, you know, I was really young at the time, but they seemed to enjoy an autonomy and independence that owning your own business afforded them. And it was never really about the money. It was more about that. And this inspired me to follow in my grandfather's footsteps and instilled a desire in me to have a company of my own someday. And I think this was also heavily underscored when as a young boy, maybe I was around 10 years old. My father, I'll never forget, called me into the den and said, I don't care what you do for a living as long as you own it. So I guess even at that budding age, I understood he meant for me to always control my own destiny. And I think those sort of two circumstances had a profound and lasting impact on me. And I believe, you know, my entrepreneurial journey started there. Oh, that's fascinating. That's an amazing story. So I'd like to like move into just talking about you a little bit more as a person and what some of the things you've learned have worked for you and maybe share some wisdom with other budding entrepreneurs. Do you have certain habits that you do every day or every week that have been really important to you in your business and in your life? Maybe some of my best habits or some of my worst habits, which is that I, th I think one of my biggest challenges is my strong emotional connection and passion for the companies I create. I become part of them and maybe they become part of me. And I am a leader who can dig into and maybe manage in the detail because I like to deeply understand every facet of our businesses, every transaction, every deal. But, you know, as my companies have grown, this has become more demanding. And I've had to learn to sort of let go even just a little as these companies begin to operate at serious scale. So that's sort of maybe a plus habit and a minus habit at the same time. Right, right. I mean, that's, I think that's pretty difficult to let go of some things that you, when the company was smaller, were able to keep your hands on. Is that part of your ability to you know, hire the right people, to take on things so you don't have to worry as much about every detail? It's really trusting my teams. You know, I tell my team members, how do you know when you're doing great or I trust you? When they come in and say, oh, we've got such and such a problem. And I always say to the people I trust the most, what do you recommend? And then I either accept, reject, or counter. So that's how it is. Mm -hmm. Right, right. That's great. And then they feel really, uh, you know, in involved and um, part of the process. And empowered. Oh, empowered. Right. Empowered. Sure. So... What is some advice that you've gotten over the years that you are happy that you accepted and any you might pass along to someone who's 
either has an idea for a company or even has a company already and is just in the, the beginning stages, what's some advice that you would give to them? Let's see. I would say advice to give to young entrepreneurs, I would say, don't follow the dogma of others and don't let the noise of other people's opinions drown out your inner voice. In fact, Steve Jobs said, your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. If you have an idea, you have to go for it. And I would say three big ideas. Number one, get in the game. Two, solve a problem. And three, DROOM, which stands for don't run out of money. So number one, get in the game. You know, While great businesses are as difficult to find as they are rare, it's never a bad time to start a company because experience is usually what you get when you don't get what you want. So I recommend young entrepreneurs just find an MVP or a minimum viable product. You launch, fail, and then pivot to the next opportunity. You must be willing to pivot because no business ever survives its interaction with its first customer anyway. All of my businesses that I've ever started started as one idea and within the first year completely changed. I mean, at Evenly, we started as a retail store in DuPont Circle and ended up pivoting to this idea of a national footprint asset-like business operating inside other doctors' offices. I would say number two is solve a problem. So I like to say no problem, no solution, no company. And the bigger the problem you solve, the bigger the opportunity you have to create revolutionary change. And then lastly, Droom, don't run out of money. I think it's really important. A lot of people forget this. Identify how much money you need to start your business and how much money you'll need in reserve. Because when you run out of money, no matter how great your idea is, it's game over. Ben Franklin once said, a man whose outflow is greater than his intake, well, then his upkeep will result in his downfall. Right, right. And I think that's really tricky for a beginning entrepreneur to know exactly what you just said and know how much money they need and know where to go to find that. So when you were starting out, were there certain people who really helped you learn that? Or did you figure out, you know, did you find that out the hard way? Like, did you ever run out of money? At Blue Mercury, we ran out of money. We realized we'd be out of money six months into the founding of the company. We went out to raise more money. NASDAQ crashed and we were unable to raise money. We had to pivot, change what we were doing, become cash flow positive. You know, I think I learned that lesson here at Evenly. We raised a large amount of money uh, and probably more than we should have or needed. But I think that it was, it, it feels good to have that safety net. Right, right, for sure. What is one thing that people might be surprised to find out about you that you're willing to share? Is there something you've done or that you have as a hobby or anything like that that someone would be surprised to know about you? I think I'm probably a lot more spiritual than most people would expect and with a huge focus on my family. That's wonderful. So you make time in your life to make that a priority as well, your family and your spiritual practice. Yeah, I mean, I travel a lot for work, so I make sure I'm home every Friday night to spend time with my kids, although they are growing up and getting older and preparing. My oldest is already in college. I have another one going to college next year, and then I have my youngest, who's still uh, a sophomore in high school. Since a lot of the people listening to our podcast are students at Cornell who may have an idea, may not, may just not really know what to do with their career, what are some tips that you've given to even your own kids about careers, about life, about this point in their life when they're in college and they're just trying to figure out what's next for them? Well, I would say to my kids, the number one thing is putting each other first and focusing on wrapping their arms around each other, supporting each other and putting our family first. And this is something that's really important to them. And then for me, you know, I would love them to start their own businesses or find a way to add to the world through disruption and change. 
this is the sort of age-old question. Do we want change? Do we really want change? Do we want to be part of a society that's dynamic? Do we want the disruption that change creates? You know, for example, car companies prefer that Elon didn't exist, but it's probably better for the customer, you know, and better for the world. And so no matter what my kids do, I would love them to be changing the world for the better, innovating. My oldest daughter has her own startup called Girls Who Start, and she is helping to get more female entrepreneurs engaged. My next daughter has her own startup called Teens Against Plastic, getting more young teens to fight against plastic consumption in the world today. And my young son is a budding scientist uh, and is one of the most accomplished scientists in Washington, D.C. in his age group, working on uh, next generation uh, biofuels and flame retardants. And so I just think that for me, I want them to focus on family. And then after family, it's finding a way to innovate, solve problems for the world and, and do well for themselves at the same time. And I don't think any of those things are exclusive or mutually exclusive. That's great. So a little bit about what you do when you're not working. Do you like to read? Are there certain things that you would recommend in terms of articles or books or websites, things that you you always keep an eye on in terms of reading? I mean, I am a voracious reader. I would say two books I recommend to any budding entrepreneur. Number one, Grinding It Out by Ray Kroc, which is really the story of an irrepressible enthusiast who built McDonald's into one of the largest retail chains in the world. And then also in another amazing book, which you could listen to on tape, is The Upstarts which is the story of how Uber, Airbnb, and the sort of killer companies of the new Silicon Valley are changing the world. And this is really this idea of like, when I was a kid, getting into a car with a perfect stranger was sort of everything my mother warned me not to do. And now this is something that we do every single day. And this is sort of against the backdrop of the iconic Silicon Valley renegades like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. This new generation of entrepreneurs is using technology to upend convention and disrupt entire industries. These are the kind of books I love to read and enjoy. My next question was, is there a business person you admire? When you think of people that you admire, who comes to mind? So thank you for that question. It's a good question. You know, for me, I would say it's all about innovation and industry disruption. So the leaders I admire the most really are those who attempt to reinvent genres, change industries, really challenge the status quo. So I would say three people I respect and admire the most are, let's say, one, Steve Jobs, because he was a guy that signals to break the rules. Steve Jobs created the iPhone, which changed everything, not just the way we listen to music, take taxis and pictures, but really changed the fabric of our lives. I would say two, Jeff Bezos, because he embodies the idea of solve a problem. No problem, no solution, no company, right? So he helped cure the dissatisfaction with brick and mortar shopping with the creation of Amazon. And again, the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity. And I would say the last guy would be uh, Phil Knight because he embodies get in the game. Who said it better than the founder of Nike? Just do it. He never would have seen the opportunity for Nike if he didn't start selling other people's sneakers first. Right. That's a pretty good list for sure. Are there any things we didn't cover or any questions that we didn't talk about that you would love to talk about? You know, the only other thing I would say is people sometimes ask, what's the best advice I've ever been given? And I would say one thing to think about is nothing's always great forever. And so I think it's important to remember that markets fluctuate, stock markets drop, and even whole asset classes can disappear. And you know, I think a lot about the fact that the history of the world is written by surprises. So it's important that 
getting in the game is the first step, but then you need to continue to pivot and innovate because change is constant and always look to rebalance your risk equation. If you have a fast growing asset, maybe it makes sense to sell half and grow the rest. And I think maybe many people miss that. You know, who would have thought we would see a global pandemic in our lifetime, which really upended everything? When they asked Baron Rothschild, how'd you get so rich? He said, I always sold too early. I think this is something that is often missed and I think people should be thinking about. That is good advice to follow for sure. So tell me a little bit about how people can find out more about Evenly. Can they just talk to their dentist or what's the best way to find out more? So just please come to our website to learn more or book a free consultation at one of our more than 300 locations or check us out on LinkedIn or Instagram. Awesome. So thank you, Barry, so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Kathy. It was super fun. To find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu. And please rate and review our podcast by scrolling to the bottom. Your reviews help even more entrepreneurs find our podcast and be inspired by stories like Barry's. A special thanks to Abigail Younger, my editor extraordinaire, and to Bert Odom-Reed of the Cornell Broadcast Studio.